music that brings rest to our hearts as the Lord brings rest to us. Welcome to our service today. Summer day, a little rain, a little sunshine, but great to see you and many guests here. We welcome you from the alumni weekend, and we look forward to worshiping the Lord together. Please stand with me if you are able and join in the call to worship from Psalm 62. Truly our souls find rest in God. Our salvation comes from Him. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. Our hope comes from Him. Our salvation and our honor depend on God. He is our mighty rock, our refuge. Join me in prayer. Lord God of the universe, this morning we gather as your people to affirm our faith and trust in you. You are indeed our salvation, our hope, our God. We join the millions around the world who worship you on this day. Accept our praise and bless us with a firm sense of your goodness, your love, and your grace. In Christ's name we pray.
It is great to see you as we gather for worship today. Let me invite you before you're seated to uh, take a few moments, share a word of greeting with others who are here. Perhaps introduce yourself to someone you do not know. Let me just uh, make one uh, mention one announcement to you. To immediately following the service, uh, you're invited to uh, a picnic that we're having. Uh, hopefully, the rain will stop by that point. But if not, we're set up in the community room directly behind us. If you didn't come prepared to bring in food, that's okay. I am certain we'll have plenty, and we'd love to have you join us uh, for this time of fellowship and food following this service. Good morning. This morning's uh, ministry moment is focusing on the youth ministry, and you should know that I am grateful to God for the opportunity to serve him as the youth pastor here at Houghton Wesleyan Church. I'm also grateful for the youth committee, and uh, while we struggled to meet this past year, due in large part to uh, some of our family's personal challenges that we've been walking through, uh, these folks have given thoughtful and purposeful leadership to the youth ministry And I'm really grateful for you guys. Sunday school this year averaged about 30 students per week. And one new thing that we tried is something that we are calling words of wisdom. Four times this year, we invited someone from our church who is uh, on the other end of the age spectrum from our students. Someone they might not always rub elbows with. And then we had a student interview that person for our class. This has been a fantastic time of fellowship of hearing stories of God's faithfulness and of interacting with people from our faith community that we might have seen in church but maybe haven't really met before. They've been really meaningful times together. On Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m., we have prayer breakfast. Now, some people would say that teenagers and mornings don't mix well. But this year, we average 24 students a week. And all we really do is gather more or less at 7 a.m., We eat some pancakes. We sing two of the old hymns right out of the hymnal, unaccompanied. And we spend a few minutes in prayer. And then they're off to school. There's a group of about eight or nine people that volunteer and take turns coming in to set up tables and chairs and flip pancakes and wash dishes and drive students to school. Is there anybody, if you're here and you're in that group, would you stand up if you help with prayer breakfast? There we go. There's... The others do go to this church. I think they're at the 8.30 service. They were at the 8.30. Uh, I'm very grateful for those folks who help with that. The backbone of our student ministry is our Sunday night youth youth, uh, life groups. Sorry, life groups. Sunday nights at 6 p.m. we gather first as a large group for games and announcements and celebration of birthdays and sort of the traditional youth group craziness.
Isn't that fun? But then, normally the bulk of our time is spent in small groups. You heard a couple of weeks ago from Kathy Hilsher, who's part of a fantastic team of more than 20 committed small group leaders that are a consistent and nurturing force in the lives of our students. Uh, if you're here in that group of small group leaders, would you stand up? They all go to the 830 service too. Okay. Uh, but please be in prayer for these small group leaders, these folks who walk alongside our students. We're grateful for them. Now, it's also it's well known that students feel loved when they've been fed. And so we, uh, we have a, a list of people who t- once or twice a semester bring snacks for youth group. And as a youth leader, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is that yummy goodies for 60 students miraculously appear in the church kitchen on Sunday nights. It is amazing. And of course, there were a full slate of special events this year. Things like Storm the Heights, which is, it's kind of like a huge capture the flag on steroids kind of game. And uh, this is an outreach event for us. It happens in October, early October. Our district winter retreat occurs in January and is a great time for us to kind of step away from our normal routine, go to camp, spend some time focusing on God and his word and on his work in our world. We recently completed our 30-hour famine, which many of you uh, heard about and contributed to. We're very grateful to Kim Poole, who spearheaded that event for us. And this year, we set a huge goal for ourselves. $4,000 was our goal. And while we didn't quite get there, we did raise over $3,600 for students, uh, for children who, who are hungry. That's the most we've ever raised in, in 10 years that we've been doing this event. So we're really, really grateful for that. And of course, uh, our mission trip to Puerto Rico is fast approaching. We plan to leave on July 21st. We're already deep into the planning for next year. And I would ask that you would please pray with us that God will make our church a place where young people are drawn into transforming relationships with Jesus and with this community of faith. Pray that our youth will experience Jesus in personal and powerful ways as we worship and serve together. And also pray that God will enable each of us as adults to live our lives with Christ in such a way that young people in our church and community can't help but be drawn to him. Finally, pray for our study of God's word that this solid foundation will result in students who are effective, lifelong servants of Jesus Christ. Thanks for praying with us. The only thing, I guess John needs to do some recruiting amongst this service, but... uh... We have a marvelous youth ministry in this church for which we're very, very, very grateful. Keep them in your prayers. We're looking at God's Word. Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 130. 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, 
so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for the word the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, let us stand together, if you're able, and sing the doxology. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Thank you, Lord, for every good gift that comes down from you, faith, family, friends, and the body of believers, so many other things that you've given to us. Fill our hearts with gratitude as we give a portion back to you and your kingdom. We declare that all that we are and all that we have belongs to you and comes from you. In Christ's name, amen.
We ask God to be our vision because he is the great God who loves us, who cares for us, who, who knows every part of us and desires us to know him. We come today to this uh, moment of prayer and recognizing who God is and the grace and the goodness of God, we are free to be honest with God. So let me invite you to join me in the prayer of confession. It's printed in your bulletin. As we pray together, acknowledging our sin and our need for God. Let us pray. Almighty God, you love us, but we are often hesitant to love you. You call, but we are often hesitant to listen. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We subtly ignore evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit our sin, so that as you come to us in mercy, we may repent, turn to you, and receive forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who has promised that if we confess our sins, he will indeed forgive our sins. Amen. This morning, as we uh, continue in prayer, we want to give thanks to God for the ways in which we see him at work. We have been praying for Gus Prinzel the last few weeks, and he, among others, has experienced uh, a measure of God's healing this week. And we give thanks to God for that. We heard about uh, God at work in our youth group, and we are so grateful for our youth group, but we're also grateful for all of our small children, too. In the uh, 8.30 service, uh, we dedicated uh, James Henry Jacoby to God, giving thanks to God for this gift of new life. And you see the rose on the pulpit is in honor of Joaquin Gabrielle Raquelme, who was born about uh, a month ago. And on Wednesday of this week, uh, we were blessed with a new life in the, in the family of our church as uh, Jerry David Oden was born. And we are grateful uh, for his grace and mercy to us as a church and us as a family. And we give thanks to God for these gifts of children. And we pray that God will give us the grace to nurture them in the faith. That they will spend their lives seeking God and knowing God. So join me as we give thanks and pray together. Holy Father, we thank you that you are a God for whom we can have a vision and find grace and mercy and truth and love. We thank you that you are a God who blesses us with gifts of healing. We thank you for what you have done this week in Gus and in others. We thank you that you are a God who blesses us with new life. We thank you for James Henry and for for Joaquin, Gabriel, and for Jerry David and for all the other children who are a part of our church. And we give you thanks. We thank you for our youth group, for every one of them and for all the people who work with them. We thank you for each life that they represent. 
We give you thanks. We give you thanks for the, the privilege of reunions, like been at the college this week. And we pray that you will continue to bless each one and as, as connections are, are made and, and reconnections are made. We thank you for the gift of relationships. We thank you for the work at the academy and the commencement exercises this weekend there and for all the lives that that represents. And we thank you for being at work in the graduates, and the staff, and the faculty, and administrators at the academy. Father, we thank you that you are at work in each of us, giving comfort in our grief, bringing healing into our brokenness. We pray especially today for your healing grace upon Florence Tuber, and Dan Gurley, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Gus and Louise Princell, Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter, Cheryl O'Brien, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Emily Cricklar, and others. We thank you for your healing work in each of them. We thank you for restoring relationships that are broken. We thank you for your work in, in leading us and guiding us about the future. We thank you that we can place all the needs and burdens of our lives into your hands and know that you are at work and you are good. We thank you not only for what you're doing here in this place, but for churches around us as well. May your blessing rest upon the Belmont First Baptist Church and Pastor Bill Matthews, that they would know your grace and strength, that you would bind them together in your love, that they would be a witness to you in Belmont and beyond. We pray for our nation. Thank you for what you're doing in our nation in the midst of troubling times of, of disasters and tragedies. We know that you are at work. We pray for our world. We thank you for the, the work you're doing among refugees, bringing security and hope in very difficult circumstances. We pray, Father, for the places of war and violence, that you would bring peace. We pray for your blessing upon the summit this week in Singapore. We have no idea what will come out of this, but we ask that you would do the miraculous to bring about higher levels of peace in our world. We think particularly of the church in North Korea and our brothers and sisters who face such difficult circumstances of living out their faith and gathering for worship. May there be an easing of the pressure that they may, they may be more uh, free to practice their faith and to witness their faith. Give them strength. Thank you for helping the church there through the years. May there be a revival of your spirit among the Christians in the church in North Korea. We pray the same for, for Russia. We thank you for Dan and Kathy Moore and for the years of, of ministry that they have, have had in Russia and as they have left this week to Minister once again in Perm. May this month of ministry be fruitful for the kingdom. And may they see 
you at work in ways that they could never have imagined. Thank you for being present here in our worship. Thank you for being present in this world. We pray your anointing upon us as we continue to listen to you and hear you and experience you and engage you. May your anointing rest upon Sarah as she preaches and upon our ears and our hearts as we listen. Thank you, Father, for your blessings. There's so much about life in the world that is confusing to us. But Lord, the one thing we know is that you are good and you are merciful and we can trust you and you're at work. And so we offer our prayer in confidence and faith and hope in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I have entrusted you.
Reminder that after the hymn following the scripture, children ages 2 to 5 may go over to the Christian Ed Building for Children's Church. Also, we welcome to our pulpit today Dr. Sarah Dirk, and she's recently been appointed as the chairman of the theology department at Houghton College. It's a great honor to have her here today, and I've already been blessed by the sermon in the first service, and I'm going to get a second dose. So whether this is your first or second, it's going to really bless you. So now we turn to our scripture from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. Our, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord.
very good morning to you all. Will you please pray with me? Loving Lord, in these moments, as we hear and consider your written word, would you please send your living word to us? Open our hearts to hear what you would do in us today. Please enliven my words for your glory. Amen. Would you please take 30 seconds to have a brief conversation with your neighbor and tell each other about the last time you spent a night unable to sleep? 30 seconds. It's amazing to me how a group of people know when 30 seconds have passed and you just (laughs) quietly calm down. Can you remember the last time you tossed and turned your way through the night, wishing that morning would just hurry up and come already? Maybe you were having trouble sleeping, uh, but you didn't want to just get up and, well, be up in the middle of the night, so you laid there and stared at the ceiling Uh, Or you tried some breathing exercises, or my favorite trick for turning off my mind to go back to sleep, I try to think of a flower for every letter of the alphabet, or a fruit, or an animal. So if you're bored in the rest of this sermon, there you go. (laughs) Or maybe you were awake because you were ill or in pain, And lying there was just physically difficult for you. And at least the morning would bring another dose of medicine and the routine of a new day to take your mind off of your pain. Or maybe you were so excited for what was going to happen the next day that the night was unending and you just couldn't sleep until you finally drifted off one hour before the alarm. Have you ever been desperate for morning to come when you weren't even in bed? I recently spent a night in a freezing airport terminal in Manchester, England, trying to sleep on a hard chair, being woken up every 15 minutes by an announcer telling me to report unattended baggage, twice by toddlers who had escaped their travel leashes to crawl onto my row of seats, and once by the sudden panic that my suitcase had been stolen while I was sleeping, only to wake up and see that my feet were propped up on it. (laughs) Seven hours of this agony. And even though I was exhausted, I was so glad when morning came because it meant the coffee shop would open and I could get something warm to drink. And then not too long after that, the ticket counter would open and I could hand over my suitcase. And eventually a gate would be assigned and I could get on the plane and get one step closer to Houghton. That journey last week took me 42 hours. I learned a lot about waiting. We are dwelling in the Psalms this summer, 
And today's psalm invites us to learn how to wait well. Uh, Waiting means a lot of things in the scriptures, and I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 130. If you don't have your own Bible with you, either print copy or on the phone, there are Bibles in the pew, Psalm 130. I spent the semester in my preaching class insisting that when my students give out a passage of scripture, they give people time to find it. So that's why I'm still talking, Psalm 130. Please turn there and follow with me. This psalm offers us another image of being eager for the sunrise. The psalm describes the poet's longing for God in these terms. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen in Israel were stationed high on a watchtower or at a checkpoint overlooking a strategic road. They patrolled the streets of the city or guarded the gates of the palace all night long. And for them, the first rays of the morning sun meant that warmth and food and sleep were nearly theirs. They could get off their feet and quit peering into the darkness and stop listening for every little sound. And they could retire with the confidence that they had kept everything safe for another night and served their master well. But here, our poet wants the Lord to show up even more than those watchmen waiting for their morning. Why is the psalmist waiting for God in the first place? Because he is in deep distress. The psalm opens with one of the most beautiful lines of lament in all of Scripture— Read with me now. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Let's try that again. Read aloud with me together. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. You might not know it, but you just told God to sit up and pay attention to you. We said it in the words of scripture, but that's the the impulse of these kinds of cries in lament psalms. Just what these depths that the psalmist is talking about are unstated. The word in Hebrew, depths, often refers to the waters of the deep sea, which for an ancient person was a terribly frightening place of chaos and darkness. These waters signify the deepest distress, that state of panic or despair that some of us have been plunged into at one time or another, that rock in your stomach when your bank account is suddenly empty and payday is two weeks away. Or, when you decided to wait until the night before to study for Dr. Dirk's Old Testament exam, and then you realized there was not enough time left, and you were going to fail. Or when the doctor calls and asks, are you alone, or can you find someone to be with you, because she has bad news about that shadow on the x-ray. Or when your water breaks, but your due date is still ten weeks away. Out of the depths, 
of our panic and chaos, a cry for help comes clawing its way up out of our throats, straight into the listening ears of God. These Hebrew verb forms, hear, be attentive, in verses 1 and 2. They can sometimes be translated with exclamation points, and I think that's the sense that the psalmist is using. The psalmist knows he will be heard, but in his desperation, he cannot be calm and reverential. Instead, he demands that the Lord listen. Pay attention, God. Hear me, won't you please? Lord, are you listening? Please, God, mercy, you've just got to save me. Like many of the lament psalms, this one preserves very little dignity for the speaker, who's overwhelmed by his suffering and will not be ignored by his God. He has nothing else to lose, and so he assaults the doors of heaven with less than the usual measure of reverence and decorum that you and I have been taught to bring to our prayer life. After the initial eruption of despair that sends him pleading, the psalmist seems to realize where his pleas have led him into the very court of the holy God, where he is immediately aware of his own sinfulness. Read with me verses 3 and 4. Again, would you practice reading this out loud with me? If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We sort of expect this turn towards sinfulness, don't we? I mean, suffering does have a way of turning our attention to our own shortcomings. I think of the man I read about who confessed to his priest, I deserve this cancer because I was taking life for granted. Or the friend who asked me, what if God made me infertile because he knew I wasn't patient enough to be a mother? Or the student years ago who said to me, if I had only tried harder to be a morning person, then I wouldn't have depression right now. Or the boy who whispered to my pastor friend a few weeks ago, right before she started the funeral service, I told my mom I hated her, and now she's dead. Did I kill her? In moments of calamity, we all have a terrifying suspicion that we deserve exactly what is happening to us. But astonishingly, this is not the direction the psalmist goes. He is fully aware of his sinfulness, but even more confident in his God. This God inspires such confidence because he refuses to play the divine bookkeeper keeping lists of our sins and whether we have paid off the debt. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Please notice the order of action there. The psalmist is forgiven and then enters into worship and service of God. God does not wait to forgive us before we have proven that we deserve it. 
The psalmist is so assured of this forgiveness and so certain that his failings will not keep God from coming to him in his distress that he doesn't dwell at all on the question of why he is suffering. He just wants God to show up and save him, and he is sure God will. So he settles in to wait and to worship the God who forgives. On a side note, as an Old Testament professor, I cannot help but point out to you the location of this astounding confidence in God's forgiveness. We are reading a text in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ will not be born into the manger for hundreds of years yet, but this Israelite poet knew already that God forgives first, before ever we have deserved that forgiveness. We have undergone a subtle but important shift by the time we get to verse 5. The desperation of that demanding cry from the depths has settled into confident anticipation. And so in verses 5 and 6, he waits and waits and hopes and waits some more. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And what is the nature of this waiting on God? Is it that waiting of the watchmen? Yes. That eager waiting, that longing for something that always comes. That is the real point of the analogy of the watchmen. Morning always comes. The watchman can take his final circuit around the wall on his aching feet because he knows morning is here, almost. He knows that it is coming. Makes me think of our children, or at least Miriam now, and Joseph when he was much younger, when the grandparents were coming to visit from Colorado at Christmas time or the other grandparents from Kansas City. Two or three days of driving for them, two or three days of cleaning and preparation for us. We had cleaned the house from top to bottom and baked everything in sight. We had wrapped all the presents and decorated everything, and there's nothing left to do but wait. And the morning they're supposed to arrive, Miriam wakes up with these words on her lips. Are Grammy and Grandpa here yet? Are they here yet? When are they coming? How much longer until Grammy and Grandpa get here? Why aren't they here yet, Mama? Throughout the day, what is taking them so long? Where are they? Text them and find out how much longer it will be. And when I say, well, they stopped at the Cuba cheese shop and they'll be here in about an hour, call them, please, make them go faster. Mama, hurry. When will they get here? By the time they arrive, the children are practically vibrating with anticipation. But there is not a drop of fear that Grammy and Grandpa will not come. Joseph and Miriam know they will arrive. And when they come, it will be wonderful. And so it is with waiting on this Lord. Notice what this Lord brings with him. The phrasing is brilliant, but again, very subtle. This Lord, the poet is awaiting, comes bringing three things. 
With him there is forgiveness in verse 4. But also with him there is unfailing love. This is chesed in verse 7. The fiercely loyal love that you may have heard me speak of before. I actually hear there's a pool going on to see if I can preach a sermon without using the word chesed. I haven't achieved it yet, but it's not my fault. It's in the text everywhere, so... And finally, with this Lord, there is full redemption. Or in the Hebrew, great power to redeem. What an entourage! No wonder the poet hopes in the word of this God from the depths of despair and chaos. This coming Lord calls us into hope and confidence, because this Lord can and will bring about our salvation. This coming Lord forgives and never fails to love and has power to redeem anything, and therefore we need not be afraid that our sin will keep us bound or keep us apart from God. Another important but subtle shift occurs just about here, moving into verse 5. The psalmist started out speaking directly to God. But from verse 5 on, he is speaking to others. He begins testifying, if you will, in verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. I wait for the Lord, and in his word I put my hope. But he isn't content to leave it there with his own personal experience of nighttime vigil. He emerges into the light of day with a call on his lips. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. In this short psalm, we get a fairly tidy summary of what actually happens when the gospel takes hold of a person's life. Calling out to the Lord from the desperation of sinful chaos leads next into the assurance of forgiveness and reverent worship which leads to longing and waiting for God to come, and then to proclamation, calling others to hope in the Lord who redeems. It seems important to me that we pause here for a moment to notice there is no final resolution in this psalm. The Lord is awaited and trusted, but as far as this psalmist is concerned, The Lord's arrival and redemption of Israel is still in the future. In light of this, the final verse is quite poignant. As the psalmist waits for a God he knows will come, he joins, asks others to join him in his hoping. Hope is always a risk anyway, but to invite others into your hope takes another level of confidence. If the hope is unfulfilled and you're the only one hoping, it's difficult. If the hope is unfulfilled and you've invited others to join you, you look like a fool. But you see, I don't think that despite that risk, hoping and waiting for the Lord are meant to be solo activities. I know that in some difficult seasons of my own life, I would not have been able to sustain my hope in Christ on my own. It was the hope of my friends, or my parents, or my praying grandparents. 
and their confidence that God was forgiving and loving me, redeeming me and my circumstances that helped me to cry out to God from my depths and to look again toward the dawn of morning, as it were. One of the great gifts of waiting on the Lord, I have found, is the discovery of the companions God sends me while I wait. I have learned to ask, will you please hope for me for a little while while we wait? And likewise, I have been able sometimes to say to others, I will hold your hope for you for a little while until you are strong enough to take it up again. And here we come to the connection with our New Testament text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul and Timothy are writing to this church that they have poured their hearts out to. And again, let me read it for you. You don't have to turn to it this time. I'll read it for you. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. These believers in Corinth are like us. They have already learned of the redemption Christ brings through his resurrection. But also like us, they are still awaiting his second coming. Waiting for the completion of his saving work, which includes the final resurrection of all believers. Paul and Timothy could not envision the glory of that day without the presence of the Corinthian brothers and sisters. In fact, the extension of God's grace to more and more people as they waited kept them from losing heart. As we wait, if we want to wait well, we will invite others to wait in hope with us. Now, if you would allow me, I'd like to ask sort of a pointed question right now. Returning to Psalm 130. How might we pray this psalm now? Now that we know Christ has already come to redeem Israel and grafted us into that tree. When we say, along with the psalmist, that we are, quote, waiting on the Lord, what do we mean by that these days? I hear that phrase used quite a, quite a few different ways, and all of them are legitimate. I think sometimes we mean that we are waiting for direction from God, for confirmation or guidance on a particular decision that we are facing. 
Just the other day, a friend asked me about a decision I was trying to make, and I responded with, I don't really have clarity right now. I'm waiting on the Lord. Sometimes when we say, I'm waiting on the Lord, we mean that our prayers for a certain situation have not been answered yet, and it's kind of a holy way of saying, I'm trying to be patient with God. (laughs) Sometimes we mean simply that we are trying to live in a posture of service and openness to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And these, as I said, are all legitimate but I think we're missing one. I wonder if there is another more specific way in which we should also be waiting for the Lord. Do we ever mean, as I think the psalmist did, and as I know Paul and Timothy did, that we are waiting on the Lord to come? Actually to arrive. Yes, with forgiveness and love and redemption in his luggage, but actually to come be with us. Do we really believe the Lord is coming again? And if we do, how might that shape your hope, my waiting, our life together here in Allegheny County? If we actually begin to think of our Lord as someone on his way, just like Joseph and Miriam when they are waiting for grandma and grandpa. If our waiting on the Lord isn't only a spiritual euphemism or a metaphor, but actual waiting for the imminent arrival of the Lord who always comes and comes bringing forgiveness and love, and redemption. Could we enter the mind of the eager child who says, Come, Lord Jesus, hurry up! These are not actually questions I'm going to answer for you today. I look forward to what the Holy Spirit might do in your imagination. How might your life be shaped by living in active waiting for the Lord's actual arrival? Amen.
And so, in light of our soon-coming king, go in peace to love and serve him with gladness and singleness of heart. Amen. Thank you.